Good morning, Keystone. How many of you know the name Jim Valvano? Okay, a couple more than first service. All right, take it. Uh, every, every summer, there is an award show that's shown called the ESPYs. ESPN puts it on. Uh, and it highlights the kind of achievements, accolades of athletes from the past year. Uh, and since 2007, they've also given the Jimmy V Award away, which is named after Jim Valvano, who was a basketball coach who passed away in the early 1990s. And it, um, it highlights or recognizes someone who's faced obstacles with endurance and perseverance, essentially. And so there, there are all sorts of athletes that get awards throughout the night, uh, and they give the kind of typical award recipient speech, which I'm sure you've heard in some frame before, uh, the type of thank you to my fans, thank you to my mom, thank you to the Nike sneakers that made it all possible, uh, the stuff that no one, no one really remembers. And this was the case in 2016 uh, when award winners included the likes of LeBron James, uh, Steph Curry, Bryce Harper, Serena Williams, Aaron Rodgers, and more. And the most powerful part of the evening uh, came when Craig Sager received the Jimmy V Award. Uh, Sager was a basketball uh, reporter analysis who was kind of famous for his flashy suits and halftime interviews. Uh, who's currently facing terminal leukemia. And so for the next nine minutes, he talked, and an audience full of athletes and celebrities, some of the strongest and healthiest people living, stood and hung on every word of a dying man as he told them about what a gift life is. And we watch something like that and we're reminded that often the words of someone who's facing death are powerful words. And over the next seven weeks, what we're going to do in this series is look at the words of Jesus as he hangs on the cross and faces death for us. He speaks words that help us to understand that what appears to be a tragedy is in fact the greatest triumph over evil. That what appears to be a cause for despair is actually the cause for our greatest delight if we believe in him. He gives us seven sayings. Seven sayings that help us understand Jesus and what he's doing on the cross. Seven sayings that help us to understand why the cross is necessary for us. Seven sayings that give us a window into the very heart of God and seven sayings that can increase our faith and ground our hope as we look at them. And so that's what we're going to do in this series for seven weeks, is look at these last seven sayings of Jesus as he hangs on the cross. Starting today with his words in Luke 23, 34, where he says, Father, forgive them. And so you can turn to Luke 23. Uh, we'll be in verses 32 through 38 this morning. I think it's easy over time for something that once caused us wonder and amazement to be taken for granted and become ordinary. Think about the, the person who flies in an airplane every day, likely forgets what it was like to be a child flying in an airplane for the first time. The 25-year-old the who drives to work in the morning likely forgets what it was like to be a 16-year-old driving alone with your license for the first time. 
the, the person who wakes up every day to see the exact same tree out their window likely forgets what it was like to see that tree for the first time and be captivated by its size and its beauty. The, the couple who's been married for 20 years likely forgets what it was like to hold each other's hands for the first time. Like over time, things that were once extraordinary can easily become ordinary. And part of what makes a good photographer, I think, is that they can, with an image, take something that's become ordinary and remind us of just how extraordinary it is. Whether it's a tree or a couple holding hands or, or anything else, to, fill, to capture an image that fills us with wonder again over something that we've taken for granted. Because forgiveness is so central to Christianity, it's easy to lose the wonder that God forgives all our sins in Christ. Because we talk about it so often, or hear about it so often, or read about it so often, it's really easy for us to forget how incredible and good it is that God forgives us. And the cross can be like a good photographer or a good picture to us that can cause us to stop and look and see what's happening and again restore us with wonder over the fact that God forgives us. That we might say a clear view of the cross can lead to a distinct wonder of forgiveness. And that's my hope this morning as we look at this first saying of Jesus, that we might again see and feel the wonder of what it means to be forgiven, whether for the first time or for the thousandth time. So let's pray together and then we'll read Luke 23, 32 through 38. Father, we come to you always asking you to open our eyes whether it's to see something for the first time or simply to see it in a new way though we've seen it many times. Our, our hearts are in some ways in need of constant revival because things that were once incredible, the cross, forgiveness, quickly get taken for granted by us. And so pray that you would speak today, that you would God, my words, that your spirit would help us to walk out the doors saying again, how incredible is it that we are forgiven in Christ? I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke 23, 32. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he's the Christ of God, his chosen one. The rulers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. When we see and hear 
what's taking place at the cross, it should, first of all, repulse us. It should cause us horror. It should leave us shaking our heads. We should think, how could people take an innocent man, not just someone who's innocent of what they accused him of, but innocent of ever doing anything wrong, and put him to death in what's probably one of the most brutal, cruel, humiliating, shameful ways ever invented. Like the cross is meant to inflict maximum amount of suffering. The cross is meant to inflict maximum amount of humiliation. The cross is meant to inflict a maximum amount of terror for all who watch. To, to see the cross is first to be repulsed by its ugliness. And yet the, the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, don't dwell on the gory details of the cross. And we should want, why, why is that? In part, because everyone they're first writing to is familiar with crucifixions and has probably seen one firsthand. But I think it's also because these writers, including Luke, want us to see beyond the surface of what's happening to what's really happening as Jesus dies on the cross in this scenario. And as we look beyond the surface, one of the first things we might see is the cross gives us a picture of the ugliness of our sin. If we want to see how awful our sin is, which we need to see if we want to see again how wonderful forgiveness is, then there's no better place to look, to stare at than the cross and what's happening there. We, we might just even ask a couple questions to get, to get at this a little bit. We might ask, first of all, how could anyone put another human being to death in this way? How, how could Jewish rulers condemn an innocent man to die in this way? How could Roman soldiers callously put people to death in this way week after week? And how could they both just stand and mock him and poke fun at him as he suffered and died? Because sin does whatever it takes to get whatever it wants. The rulers want to get rid of this man who's upsetting their religious system. The Romans want absolute submission to their government. And they both want to be convinced that what they're doing is right. Sin is self-centered. Getting, trying to get what it wants, no matter what damage it may inflict. And so the ugly picture we see of sin as the rulers and the Romans crucify Jesus is the same type of ugliness that still dwells in our own hearts as we're self-centered and sinful. But, and we might also ask, well, how could people treat God in this way? And we might respond, well, no, they, they didn't, necessarily know that this was God like we do, saying Jesus is fully man, fully God. But the Jewish rulers should have at least had an idea. They weren't completely ignorant. Is this really what happens when people get their hands on God? How, how can that be? Because sin is always opposed to God. Sin at its core says, God, you're not good. Your ways are not good. Your commands are not good. And if it comes down to obeying you, submitting to you, or getting what I want, then I'll try to get what I want. The, the cross just gives us a graphic picture of the fact that sin by its nature is 
always opposed to God and always tries to do away with him to get what we want. That's the, the ugliness of sin, the, the type of sin that should shock us. The cross shocks us with the horror of this sin, we might say. As, as a kid's book, book puts it, I think, sin spoils beautiful things. And when the most beautiful thing came, God himself, sin tried to spoil, it, spoil him by killing him. We, we so easily forget how awful, destructive, deadly sin is. And the cross shocks us again with the horror of it. We, we have out in our church lobby right now, against the wall, a defibrillator. We've never had to use it in Keystone's history. But if someone this morning in here, if our heart, someone's heart stopped beating, we would think it's absolutely right and appropriate to go grab that and to shock that person's heart back into action because it stopped working. The, the drastic shock would be approved of or said, that's good because of how the heart had stopped working. The same way, the drastic nature of the cross and its ugliness is meant to shock our hearts back into seeing just how ugly sin is. And not just the sin of the Romans and the Jewish rulers, but our own sin that made the cross necessary as well. Sin also shows us or gives us a picture, shocks us with God's hatred of sin. We, we can never forget that the reason Jesus is hanging on the cross is not ultimately because Roman soldiers nailed him there, not ultimately because Jewish leaders tried to put him there, not ultimately because of Pilate or Herod or anyone else. He is there because God planned and predestined for him to be there. That's what Acts 4, 27 through 28 reminds us of. That, that before creation, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit chose planned that Jesus would come to die for sin. And Jesus willingly agreed, yes, I'll go die for sin. That's why a passage like Isaiah 53.10 can tell us, yet it was the will of the Lord, the will of the Father to crush him, Jesus the Son. Jesus is on the cross to bear the punishment for our sin. And it's God's will, which is actually, it should probably better be there, God's good plan, God's pleasure to crush him because he bore sin. It's so easy for us to fall back into thinking that God views sin just like a mosquito bite. It's just annoying, just itches a little bit. When the cross reminds us of just how much God hates sin and how seriously he takes it. Erwin Lutzer has a quote where he says, if you are ever tempted to think that God takes sin lightly, look at Calvary. I, I live not too far off of Route 30 and we live within pretty close distance to a fire company as well as the state police barracks. And so it's fairly often that we'll hear sirens go past our house. And I found I do something in my mind and you probably do it too that I evaluate how serious an event is by how many sirens go past our house, right? One siren, someone burnt a bagel and overreacted. This is no big deal. 
three sirens, uh, we've got ourselves a fender bender somewhere. 20 sirens, it's going down, right? There's a massive building on fire or there's a standoff somewhere. I'm pulling up Lancaster online to see what's happening. See, I, I gauge how serious something is by the response to it. And we should gauge how serious sin is and how serious God takes it by his response to it. That nothing else will do but to put his son to death in our place to take our sin. It, it's so easy for us, myself included, to justify sin in our lives. We do it over and over again. That, that, to think, I, I'm really not that bad. That, that outburst, that was just a fluke. I'll be better next time. It's the 21st century. Come on, do we really have to talk about sin? At least I'm not as bad as that person. And the cross is like a wrecking ball to all of our justifications of sin. That they stand like thin glass at the foot of the cross and simply fall apart. And when we see God's, the horror of sin and God's hatred of sin, we, we can't keep justifying our sins. If we're ever tempted to justify sin, we, we simply need to look back at the cross. But I think there's also an encouraging part of that, that we don't need to hide and cover and justify our sin because it's as we see how ugly sin is that then we see how wonderful and good God's forgiveness is. It's as we see how ugly sin is on the cross that we start to hate sin and that we find Christ to be sweet. A old Puritan, Thomas Watson, said, till sin be bitter, Christ won't be sweet. And so the cross shows us we don't need to cover, hide, justify our sin anymore because as we see it to be bitter, we will see Christ to be sweeter. So the, the cross first shows us a picture of the ugliness of not just sin in general, my sin, your sin, our sin. And then it shows us a picture of what we deserve. The cross gives us a picture of what we deserve. The, the books of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, if you read through them, and John, they all include the account of Jesus dying on the cross. And they all include different details in some ways, talking about what happened and what Jesus said. But they all include this one detail, every single one of them that Jesus was crucified among criminals with one on his left hand and one on his right. Why do they all include that detail? There's other details some of them leave out. Why do they all include that detail? In part, they're pointing back to another thing Isaiah said in Isaiah 53, where in Isaiah 53, 12, he looks out to Jesus coming and says this, because he poured out his soul to death, and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Isaiah and the gospel writers are telling us, Jesus died in the place of a transgressor, a lawbreaker, though he himself was not a lawbreaker. And so the cross shows us what we deserve as people who have rebelled rejected, or just simply ignored God's good law. And so what we see is Jesus stepping in and taking our place on the cross. That Jesus was condemned so we could be forgiven. 1 Peter 2.24 talks about it this way. He says, he himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his body. He had them in his body 
while he's on the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. When the gospel writers point out, he died in the place of a criminal, he's saying, he died in our place. He bore our sins. He took our condemnation. He stepped in and took the punishment we deserve. And the Jewish rulers and Roman soldiers unwittingly point this out in this passage. Did you catch that as they mock him? What's their logic? The Jewish ruler's logic is, if he were really God's anointed chosen savior, he wouldn't be dying on a cross. And the Roman soldier's logic is, if he were really a powerful, good king, he wouldn't be dying on a cross. But what's Jesus' logic? Jesus' logic is, it's exactly because I am God's anointed chosen king that I'm not coming down off this cross because if I do, no sinner ever gets forgiven. And it's exactly because I am the greatest, most powerful king that I choose to demonstrate my power in dying for my people. Jesus willingly dies so that we can live. This is the logic of the cross. It's either Jesus or me. It's, it's either he gets condemned or I do. It's either he dies to sin or I die for my sin. And what we see, this is, this is part of why we talk about the, the cross and Jesus, what he did as him being a substitute, that he steps in, he takes our place, he takes on our punishment so that when we look to him, we get forgiven and go free. One of the best examples I've come across, still imperfect, of what takes place on the cross is this. This is Kyle Carpenter. And in 2014, uh, he was awarded the Medal of Honor for something he did during his time as a Marine in Afghanistan. In 2010, he was in a security outpost uh, on, a, on a rooftop lookout with one of his friends when the Taliban launched an attack. And they threw grenades as part of that attack. And one landed in their uh, rooftop post. And Kyle immediately responded by running towards the grenade and shielding his friend from the blast. That's why you can even see part of his face being disfigured the way it is. Like, that type of picture is just incredible to me. That someone sees danger, sees maybe even death, and runs toward it, takes it on, takes on the blast so that his friend walks away unscathed. That, that's a picture of what Jesus is doing on the cross for us. But it's still imperfect because we're not simply innocent bystanders who are looking on as a grenade comes in. We are the ones who pulled the pin. We are the ones who threw it at God. And it's as it bounces back and is about to explode on us that God comes running in, pushes us out of the way, and takes the full blast. I, I, I struggle to wrap my mind around that type of God. Do you ever? That rather than giving us what we deserve, he gives us his son to take on what we deserve. That's what's happening on the cross. That's why God can forgive us. We, we tend to ask the wrong questions when it comes to forgiveness sometimes. Because sometimes we're maybe prone to ask, why wouldn't God just forgive everyone? 
But the cross forces us to ask, if that's the cost for sin, why would God forgive anyone, including me? That, that's the type of view the cross can give us. That's the type of view that can lead to a life of joy and gratitude, no matter what we're facing, because it has us always saying, I've been given so much more and so much better than I deserve, and only because Jesus took what I deserve when he died in my place. R.C. Sproul has a great quote that I think captures it when he says that I am drawing breath this morning is an act of divine mercy. God owes me nothing. I owe him everything. See, the cross shows us the ugliness of our sin. It shows us a picture of what we deserve, but it then ultimately shows us a picture of God's heart. That the cross gives us a glimpse, a picture into God's very heart. We've been hovering around this first saying of Jesus on both sides of this passage, and now we're going to land on it for a little bit. Jesus has been unjustly condemned, beaten, nailed to a piece of wood. And his first words that come out of his mouth, when words do not come easy, is, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. We should stop and and point out two things, or or wrestle with two things about this verse. There's more we could focus on. We'll just focus on two. First of all, seeing that this is not a declaration of forgiveness, I would say. This is a prayer to the Father by Jesus to pray or to forgive the people who put him to death. Based on the fact that they might see their sin, repent, acknowledge what they're doing, and see the one that they crucified as the one they look to for forgiveness. And, and the second thing is that we might wrestle a little bit with who's included in them. Father, forgive them. Who's them? The Roman soldiers, definitely. The the Jewish rulers, most likely. Everyone down throughout the ages who would trust Jesus for forgiveness? I I think so. I think that's part of why he leaves it open-ended in some ways. Charles Spurgeon said about this prayer, he loves the indistinctiveness of it, that them is a big enough pronoun for anyone to crawl into and find forgiveness. And and even if if you disagree, and if we say, well, he's only praying for the Roman soldiers, still, it gives us a window into God's very heart to forgive, even if it is only for the Roman soldiers. And, And we might see two things with that. First, it's not God's job to forgive. God does not have to forgive us. Jesus could have refused to offer this prayer. He could have stayed silent. He could have cursed the people who were crucifying him. Jesus doesn't pray for their forgiveness because he has to. Nor does the father answer this prayer when the centurion comes to faith or priests later come to faith or people down through ages come to faith to forgive them because he has to. God does not punch a time clock each day and think, man, I'm really sick and annoyed of forgiving people, but it's my job to do it, so I guess I'll keep doing it. I want to stop there and I want to pause and talk to maybe two groups of people. First of all, if you have not seen that Christ is the only way to be forgiven by believing in him, I want to say with gentleness but clarity, 
God does not owe you forgiveness, nor does he owe me forgiveness, nor anyone. Like lots of the world believes that he does in some way. Lots of the world thinks in a way that says, if there is a God who exists, whatever he might be like, he'll forgive me because why wouldn't he? It's his job. That the, the logic of that is in some ways comparable to me saying, Bill Gates should include me in his will because why wouldn't he? He's got lots of money, he should give it away and he should include giving it away to me. When Bill Gates owes me nothing and to be included in his will would be a shocking gift. How much more does God owe us absolutely nothing? And to be offered forgiveness in Christ is an incredibly shocking gift. And don't spurn that gift if you've never trusted in Christ. Believing the lie that says, God will forgive me because why wouldn't he? Second, if you, if you are someone who believes it's Christ alone who forgives and, and I'm trusting in him, I want to point out that God doesn't keep forgiving you and I when we confess our sins because he has to. It's not like, well, if I confess my sins, God just has to do this because it's his job. Like that, that makes us timid to confess our sins. That makes us timid to seek forgiveness because we picture God being annoyed with us, but he just has to do it. We're, we end up like a dog with our tail between our legs walking before a frowning owner and we miss the heart of the cross and what Jesus is saying in these words. Because God doesn't have to forgive, but he delights to forgive. That's what the cross is showing us. That's what Jesus is telling us with this prayer. It's exposing his very heart. We might think about it in this way. When difficulties and stresses and pressures bear down on you and I, what's in our heart tends to get exposed. This is part of the counseling philosophy at Keystone, is that the heat that comes into our lives, circumstances, difficulties, stressors, exposes what's in there. And we can picture it almost like a bottle that has some liquid in, and as it gets shaken up, then you find out what's really in there. Let's apply that to Jesus for a minute. He's experiencing the ultimate heat. Unjustly condemned, suffering, nailed to a cross, people mocking him. And what comes bubbling up out of his heart? Father, forgive them. Forgive them. That that's what comes bubbling up out of his heart. No, he doesn't have to forgive, but he delights to forgive. He loves to forgive. And yes, we should be clear that those who don't look to Christ for forgiveness, in the end, there is no forgiveness but for those who trust in Jesus, seek his forgiveness for the first time or for the thousandth time, God loves to forgive. I've got a three-year-old son right now. And when I ask him, hey, do you want to wrestle? He does not have to wrestle. But every time I ask him, he gets really excited and jumps up because he loves to wrestle and he gets excited to wrestle. It's part of who he is as a three-year-old. Is that your view, my view of God and his forgiveness? That he gets excited to forgive? That he loves to forgive when we come before him? Or do we picture him as being stingy with his forgiveness? 
Because if we do, we miss the cross and we miss the power of Jesus' words here. The cross tells us God loves to forgive because it displays his heart for sinners. And and not only that, but we might see God loves to answer this prayer of Jesus that he prays on the cross. Father, forgive them. The, The prayer I would say, I think he continues to pray even now for us in heaven. God loves to answer that prayer because it shows the worth of his son. I mean, think about it. We might picture ourselves coming before God, confessing sin, asking for forgiveness, and and God's response to us might look something like this. Yes, you, you think your sin is bad, and it is because it required the cross. But look at my son. He's so much better, and he took care of it all. It is how Scott Hubbard puts it in a quote where he says, what makes God glad to forgive you? Not your merits, not your vows, not your future potential, but rather the worth of the lamb who was slain. That's true for you if you've never looked to Jesus for forgiveness before and today you recognize your need. And that's true if you've been a Christian for 20 years, 30 years, and yet this week you continue to see your sin and confess and apply Jesus' forgiveness to it. Let's take a, or get a couple of takeaways from this. The, the cross gives us power to live in the present. And I just want to point out two ways. There are probably lots of ways we could see this, but two ways in relation to this. First of all, the cross gives us power to live without guilt. We find the power to live without guilt. And and I don't mean by that that we never feel guilty because guilt is in some ways the right response to having wronged someone else and having ultimately wronged God. But I'm convinced many Christians live with a sort of low-level sense of guilt hanging over them where they're constantly aware of how they've let God down and not lived up to his expectations. And I'm convinced of that because I'm one of those who's prone to live in that way. That that I dwell on my past mistakes and sins. And I'm not talking like 10 years ago. I'm talking like a day ago or 10 minutes ago. Like I dwell on, how could have I said something like that? What is wrong with me? How could have I thought about that circumstance or that person in that way? What is my problem? How could have I responded to my son in that way? I'm such a bad father. How could I talk to my wife in that way? I'm such a bad husband. Why did I do that? I'm, I'm such a bad person. Satan loves to keep Christians trapped in a prison of guilt, in part because it simply keeps our eyes on ourselves rather than having us fix our eyes on Christ. Guilt's main job is to get your eyes, my eyes, off ourselves and onto Christ as quick as possible. And so if you're not a Christian, guilt's main job is to get you to look to Christ for forgiveness. And if you are a Christian and you feel guilty, guilt's main job is to get your eyes back onto Christ. Yes, confess your sin, but then rejoice in the fact that you are forgiven and loved completely through Christ. Second, we find the power to have a forgiving disposition, ready, willing to forgive when called upon, when asked. To to live under the present power of the cross, to see how great our sin is, our debt is, and yet how great God's forgiveness is, should, should shape us 
to have a ready and willing disposition to forgive, whether it's a small kind of day-to-day offense or a big life-changing offense. If, if you, if I find ourselves slow to offer forgiveness, struggling to forgive someone, struggling to be quick to offer forgiveness in small offenses, camp out under the cross. Camp out under the cross and see the, the weight of your own debt and yet the goodness of God's forgiveness. One person says the rocket fuel for forgiving others. I don't know about you, I want rocket fuel for forgiving others. That sounds great. The rocket fuel for forgiving others is a keen awareness of your own forgiven debt. And even this morning as I bring that up, maybe there are some who sit here and immediately something jumps to mind of you know someone has sought your forgiveness and you have not offered it because you thought it's too hard, it's too difficult, I can't do that. Camp out under the cross. See your debt, see Christ's grace and forgiveness and find power to do what you can't do on your own. Or or maybe there's a lot of us who just want to be better and quicker to forgive and show grace in the type of day-to-day wrongs that happen in our lives, whether from coworkers or friends or spouses or children. And we want to be better at being quick to show forgiveness. Camp out under the cross. Find the power, find the disposition that might say, I've been forgiven so much in Christ. I can overlook this offense. I can forgive that offense. This past December, on December 9th, uh, an 18-year-old by the name of Shelby Houston got up to speak at her father's funeral. Richard Houston uh, was a police officer who six days earlier had been killed in the line of duty. And Shelby stood to remember her father, to talk about what a great man he was and how much she would miss him. But in the midst of it, she also talked about her heart for the man who pulled the trigger to kill her father. And here's some of the words that she said. Just listen to this, especially the words once we get to the end. There has been anger sadness, grief, and confusion. And part of me wishes I could despise the man who did this to my father. But I can't get any part of my heart to hate him. All that I can find is myself hoping and praying for this man to truly know Jesus. I thought this might change if the man continued to live. But when I heard the news that he was in stable condition, part of me was relieved. My prayer is that someday down the road, I'd get to spend some time with the man who shot my father. Not to scream at him, not to yell at him, not to scold him, simply to tell him about Jesus. We hear words like that and we think, wow, how could anyone ever respond like that in a scenario like that? That's incredible. How much more then should we hear the words of Jesus on the cross as he stares down the people pulling the trigger to kill him. And what comes bubbling out of his heart is, Father, forgive them. How much more should that cause us to say, wow, what, that's incredible. What kind of man is this? What kind of God is this? That then might immediately lead to us saying, that's my king, that's my savior, and that's still his heart for us today. Father, forgive them. Let's pray. God, it is a wonderful thing to know that 
on the cross, Jesus took all our sins. And so when we look to him in faith, what we hear is forgiveness, freedom. Not because we're great, but because he is great. And I pray that as we go into this week and we're confronted with others' sins against us, we might camp out under the cross and find the power to extend forgiveness and grace. And I pray that as we're confronted with our own sins and we see how many they are, that we might instantly in that moment then see that your mercy in Jesus is so, so much more. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.